The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 15. It's on the sheet, the screen, and it can be found on page 1212 of the Pew Bibles. Hebrews 13, verses 15 to 19. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would not be of ben- that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure we, that we have clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. The psalmist writes, the unfolding of your word gives light. And so we pray that may be true of us this evening. Amen. All religions are the same. That at least was the claim of the great church reformer, Martin Luther. He wrote of the world's religions, this is the imagination of them all. If I do this work, God will have mercy upon me. If I do not, he will be angry. That is the mindset of the religious person, that credit with God is earned through good works. If you follow many of the world's religions, you'll be taught that explicitly. But the same is true of the subtler, secular idols that we find ourselves following after. So pick your poison, whether it's money or sex or power. Each of those false gods demands something from us. And as we look to them for our security or our satisfaction, we find that they are using of what we have to put them in their place Famously, the American oil magnate John D. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough money? And he replied, just a little bit more. Because false gods are like that, aren't they? They're needy and they're greedy. They use you up. Eventually, they let you down. Well, here is our danger this evening. Our danger is that as we read a Bible passage, like the one that we've just heard, we allow ourselves to believe that the living God functions like an idol. The danger lurks in verse 16. Uh, It says this, uh, Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. If we're not careful, we might think that the God of the Bible is a demanding God. It's a very real danger, because... The gospel of good works is very popular. It's a gospel of the culture that we live in. It's a gospel that too often is taught in the churches. We've got to be alert to it. We've got to guard against it. 
Now this evening we're going to look again at these verses. We're going to see that the living God, the true God, the God of the Bible, could not be more different. Far from using us up and letting us down, what the God of the Bible does is to fill us up and then send us out. We've got two points to pull out of this passage. Here's the first of them. Joyful disciples, please God. Joyful disciples, please God. We're looking at verses 15 and 16 here. Let me read those again. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When I was first being taught how to give Bible talks, I was told that you must always do three things. You must state, illustrate, and apply. And I think the writer to the Hebrews received the same training. Because if you know the book of Hebrews, you'll know that the writer spends the first ten chapters stating things. In particular, he's stating things that are better because of Jesus. And then he spends a couple of chapters illustrating his points. In particular, he's using the lives of faith of those who have gone before us as examples for us of people who have obeyed God's word, trusted in God for salvation. And then right at the end, here in chapter 13, he's been dishing out applications He's covered several areas of life already, Uh, hospitality, marriage, money, uh, how to honour Christ in the life of the church and how to bear with the disgrace of Christ in a world that dishonours him. It's been an immensely practical set of applications. But it's only here now, in verses 15 and 16, that we get an application about our relationship with God himself. These verses are, if you like, the the drive shaft of the chapter. They link the engine that powers our obedience to God's word with the wheels where the rubber is hitting the road in everyday life as we seek to apply God's word. The issue that's being addressed here is that of motivation. Put simply, why are Christians to obey God's word? What motivates us to do so. And here's where we can go wrong. It's the the danger that we flagged up at the start. The danger is that we think God needs our good works. We can think that he's missing something, you know, sitting up there in heaven looking down over us and the mess that we've made of the world and thinking, if only those Christians would do more good and share more with others, then I'd be satisfied. You know, if only those Christians would behave themselves better, then they'd go up in my estimation of them. Well, that's what the pagan gods are like. That's what the false gods, the idols are like. Not so the God of the Bible. Not with him. No, God doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need anything from us. And remarkably, amazingly, no Christian can go up in God's estimation of them because he already esteems us to the highest. So look again at these verses. See what they actually teach. They teach that God is pleased with the sacrifice that we offer to him. Yes, but what is that sacrifice? How do we make it? 
The sacrifice in verse 15 is a sacrifice of praise. That is an expression of and overflowing from an attitude of worship and delight in God. The sacrifice that we are to offer is a movement of the heart in devotion before it is a movement of the hands in action. And it's worth pausing just there to ask whether you believe that. Because I find this a hard thing to believe sometimes. I've got a a well-developed doctrine of sin. I'm conscious of my own frailty, my own weakness, my own inadequacy before God. I know that I am often too half-hearted in my relationship with him, in my obedience to him. As Christians who take sin seriously, we may at times doubt that it is even possible for us to please God. It's discouraging to be in that place. It's soul-wearying. But it's a place that the Lord's people never need to be. If that is where you feel that you are this evening, can I urge you right now to fix your eyes on the two little words that come at the beginning of verse 15. They're there in black and white. They're there for you and for me. They say, through Jesus. Through Jesus. The sin that had alienated us from God has been dealt with in his death upon the cross. Through Jesus, those of us who were far away from him have been brought into his very family. Through Jesus, our unworthiness before God has been clothed with Christ's worthiness. It would be a bold thing, a blasphemous thing, to say that we could please God through our own hard work. But through Jesus, please God, we can. The Christian life is a life so transformed by the work of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that it overflows in an an irrepressible joy and a life lived in gratitude to God. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. If we try by our own merit, we're deluded. If we try by our own power, we're setting ourselves up for a failure. But through Jesus, only through Jesus, this is true of the Christian believer. Our lives are pleasing to God. They are a sacrifice of praise to him. And he is delighted with us as we offer ourselves in obedience to him. As is often the case, this has been illustrated with a sharp precision by C.S. Lewis. He tells a little story this way. It is like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper. But only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. You know, God does not lack anything. He doesn't need anything from us. Anything that we might have to offer him was his to begin with. But he is our heavenly father. And he delights for his children to use his good gifts in ways that honor him. Through Jesus... That is what he has enabled us to do. 
And by his Holy Spirit, that's what he equips us to do day by day. Uh, Now, if you're keeping track, you'll have seen that I've stated something and C.S. Lewis has illustrated it for us. A couple of applications in these two verses. Verse 15, what will it look like to continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise? Well, here it will look like lips that openly profess God's name. If what is true of us through Jesus is so significant, so transformative of our lives, we won't stop talking about it. The name of Jesus will spill out in our conversations. He's been so good to us. The word openly is the challenging word here. Uh, We heard last week from verse 13 about the disgrace that Jesus bore. The expectation is that in time, those who follow Jesus will bear the same disgrace. It'll be tempting to keep quiet about our faith in Jesus. But for a Christian who knows this kind of joy from what they have received through Jesus, it's like trying to suppress a sneeze, as somebody has said. You know, you try to hold your breath, but your nose starts to twitch and then it just bursts out of you. From fullness and joy, from praise and worship, we have lips that openly profess the name of Jesus because we're his people and we delight in him. The other application is there in verse 16. What will continually offering to God a sacrifice of praise look like? It will look like doing good and sharing with others. The challenging words here are, do not forget. It's really easy to fall into a pattern of life where we're hermetically sealed against the needs of those around us. But, of course, God in the gospel is generous to us in abundance. Through Jesus, we've received everything that we needed and which we could never provide for ourselves. Those who have joy because of the good gifts of God, who praise him for them, will be generous with them. And again, it's the work of Christ that comes first. It's our relationship with God that moves us into action in these applications in the world. He fills us with joy. And then he sends us out into his service. So joyful disciples, please God. Our second, our briefer point is this. Joyful leaders make joyful disciples. This comes from verses 17 to 19. Uh, Let me read verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. I happened to be in London a few weeks ago. I had the chance to catch up with the rector of my former church. And we chatted about how I was finding my time at theological college. And then he asked me, are you still praying? Well, I did what students at theological college do. I talked about how spiritually enriching I found the daily offices of morning and evening prayer. I talked about some other things besides. And then he cut in across me, but... Are you still praying? It was such a helpful question. Not because I have stopped praying, not completely, 
It was helpful because it reminded me that as I train for leadership in the church, I can't afford to neglect my own spiritual health. I've seen Christian leaders whose work has become for them a burden rather than a joy. It's all too common and it's very sad to see. I suspect that many of you here will have seen that at some point yourselves. It's beyond our scope this evening to unpack all of the consequences of joyless leaders. For our purposes, let's just focus at the end of verse 17. It says their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. We've seen that Christian disciples are those who are welling up with praise to God, overflowing from it in their service of him. If that is true of every Christian disciple, it ought to be true of every Christian leader. Their role is to help us to grow in our joy in the Lord. Those who are living that way are the ones who are equipped to help us to do the same. Those words in verse 17, they're quite strong. It would be of no benefit to you to be led by those who are not joyful, those burdened in their work. It's right that we give attention to the tasks that need to take place in church ministry. Right that we give attention to the gifts that need to be exercised, to the skills that need to be developed. But alongside those tasks and those gifts and those skills, it is essential that our leaders have joy in their work. I take it to mean that they have a healthy spiritual life. Because leaders are disciples, first of all. If they stop living lives of pleasing sacrifice to God, they won't lead us in those things. So collectively, we all have a stake in the spiritual well-being of those who are in authority over us. A good question for a congregation to ask is, who's pastoring your pastors? Who's ministering to your ministers? Or are they being fed and refreshed, built up, encouraged? You all have a stake in it. There's a hint in verse 17 that it can sometimes be the congregations themselves that can cause leaders to lose their joy. I think that we've got to walk a a tightrope here with a fall on either side. The potential fall on one side is to dishonour leaders and to undermine their authority. Cynicism can creep in, grumbling can become a, a background noise in the life of the church, criticism can begin to bubble up, That sort of thing makes the work of ministry a burden, and the Bible writers would steer us away from it. But there is a a potential fall on the other side as well. Uh, We must make sure that we don't overcorrect so much that we become blindly loyal to leaders who are unworthy or ungodly. The notion of celebrity pastors is well known in the New Testament. It is consistently condemned by it. People who sycophantically fawn over leaders are not helping them or themselves. Leaders who cultivate fan clubs or exclusive inner rings are not leading in a Christ-like way. So we must exercise caution and discernment even as we seek to submit to our leaders and have confidence in them. And the authority that leaders have comes with responsibility in verse 17. They keep watch over you as those who must give an account. There is a requirement for our leaders to lead in a godly manner. And beyond the oversight that church structures rightly provide, the Lord himself demands an account from leaders for the way in which they lead. 
And perhaps this is why the writer to the Hebrews asks for prayer in verse 18. He says that he wants to be with his readers, presumably for the mutual encouragement of ministry together. And he draws his attention to his own clear conscience, his desire to live honorably in every way. Well, I want leaders like that. Leaders who long to do the work of ministry. Leaders with clear consciences and honorable lives. Leaders whose work is a joy to them. And so I found myself challenged by verse 18 and that simple instruction, pray for us. I fear that I have neglected to do that. Well, as you pray, do pray for your leaders. Pray for people like me who are training for the task. Pray that we would have clear consciences. Pray that we would live honorably in every way. Pray that we would have joy because of what God has done for us through Jesus. We've all got a stake in this. Joyful disciples who please God, following leaders who do the same. Pray for us, the writer says. It's a good thing for us to do. Whether we're leaders or not, we're all going to need God's help in this. So let me say a prayer now for us all. It's one of the collects of the church. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and of your great mercy keep us in the same. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.